Lord, we come to Your Word this morning eager. I hope curious and intrigued. I pray that this morning it would be unique that every every word of this passage would grip our hearts. We would we would hang on every single letter and syllable to see what you have to say about entering the kingdom. Lord, this service this morning is a little different. We hope by your design and approval. So we come to consider this text that deals with salvation and then take the Lord's Supper that reminds us of salvation. I pray you would do a wonderful work through these two things. That the lost who are here this morning would be saved. That's our unashamed goal. That you would save the lost through this text. For those of us who are saved, who know your grace and mercy and life, I pray that this passage of Scripture would perhaps recalibrate us. It would refocus our perspective. It would change our attitudes. It would humble us before You. I pray that it wouldn't just be head knowledge this morning, God, but You would you would make Your Word sink down into our soul. Make it captivating and compelling and engaging. Use my feeble efforts this morning, Lord, to communicate and do something with Your Spirit that is far beyond what human words can accomplish. Work in our hearts. Lord, we need to be transformed. We need to be reminded of the radical beauty of the Gospel. That's what will enliven us. Again, Lord, as we said earlier, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different needs are here this morning. A lot of different weeks experienced in different ways. And too many needs to be met by one individual or several individuals We need You to meet our needs. And we need You to meet our greatest need this morning. We need You to touch our hearts. And I pray that Your Word would do that. Bless this time, Jesus, please. Let it not be in vain. Every soul is here this morning on purpose, ordained and designed by You to hear this text. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see and speak to us in clarity and in conviction and in correction and in encouragement. All for Your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I have debated sharing this bit of information with you because I know some of you and you're pranksters. But I'll share it anyways. I struggle opening combination locks. In fact, I so struggle with it, I've never accomplished opening a combination lock in my entire life. So you can imagine my middle school experiences when we had to have locks on our locker. It was a miserable time for me. Uh, We don't buy safes anywhere that I 
work or live that isn't digital because I just can't get through those locks. So if you ever want to lock me out of the building or anything, just put a combination lock on the handle and you've got me. And I tell you that to say everything that we do that requires entry to something, whether it be a building or a home or a vehicle or um, an organization, it all has requirements. Combination locks have too many requirements. Certain turns and certain numbers and it confuses my brain. But everything has a requirement. And that is certainly true with the kingdom of God. Heaven has a set of requirements for entry. And you have to meet those requirements or you don't enter. The doors will remain locked. They will remain shut. And sometimes we are guilty of thinking that they're swung wide open for everyone to enter. But the reality of Scripture is they're not swung wide open for everyone to enter. They only open wide for a few to enter. The Bible itself says there are few who will walk through the narrow gate of the Lord. The narrow gate that leads to eternity in heaven. That's because many, many don't meet the requirements. And they don't meet the requirements primarily because they're confused about what the requirements are. Either one, they don't know what the requirements are. That's probably the most common uh, obstacle to people entering into glory with Christ. Or they're in the church and they might mistake the requirements for other things. Some people think good works are what is required to enter into heaven. That if I do enough and earn enough and accumulate enough merit and credits on my behalf and in my account, then I can get into heaven. Some people think it's this internal realization that if I can really just reach this certain place of internal nirvana and, and enlightenment, then I'll, I'll have achieved what I need to achieve to get into heaven. Some people think it's this mystical enlightenment or mystical or spiritual understanding. If I just attain to the certain kind of truth and unity with God, then I'll get into heaven. The list really can go on and on and on to what people think are the requirements for God to receive you into His kingdom. And because of that long list, many people are confused. In fact, we know, and it's no secret to us, most of the world is pursuing entrance into heaven through falsehood and deception. Not through biblical truth. Today's text is incredibly important for us because it's coming from the mouth of the Lord on what the requirements are to enter into heaven. Who gets to go to heaven? Who gets to be in the kingdom of God? Jesus, in Luke chapter 18, is going to explain to us just who gets in. Now the Lord, through chapter 18, has been on this um, very powerful kind of role explaining the heart of God to people who have mistaken it for a long time. Most recently, last week, we looked at verses 9-14 through 14 where He's explaining to self-righteous people that those Pharisees that you think have it all together, they don't have it all together and it's the tax collector who gets justified. That was a shocking teaching of Christ. We come now to verse 
15, and he's continuing to teach a very shocking lesson. But this time, it's not to Pharisees or, or ignorant religious leaders like before. It's to his own disciples and society at large. But it's nonetheless as shocking and transformative as anything else he's said. Ultimately, he comes down to say, childlike dependence on Christ is the requirement to entering the kingdom of God. And if you don't have childlike dependence upon Christ, you will not enter. So right off the bat, a text like this is weighty. It's important. It's serious. It deserves our devotion and our attention because its subject matter is so significant. Look with me in Luke chapter 18, verse 15. It's three verses here. And we'll pull out two points of what the Lord is saying. Look in verse 15. Luke is reporting and he says, Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to Him saying, Let the children come to Me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So we begin with the context or the scene being set for us by Luke. And he starts off talking about children and children being touched by the Lord. Touching, reaching out, laying your hands on somebody is something Jesus has done quite often. It's a universal symbol of blessing and healing. And so we have this scene where apparently parents or guardians are bringing all these children to Jesus so that He might lay His hands on them. Luke says in verse 15, he's, they're even bringing infants. Jesus says in verse 16 and 17, they're bringing children. I find Luke's description of infants to be very telling. And this is the inclination or the indication of what Luke is saying with this passage of Scripture by including it in his Gospel. He's saying, look, even infants are being brought to Jesus. Nursing babies are being brought to our Lord. Newborn babies. Hardly walking toddlers. He's stressing the significance of how young they are. how incapable they are. Children are being brought to the Lord. So many children that even infants are being brought that He might bless them. Then we find this bizarre action taking place from the disciples. When the disciples realize what's happening, all these little ones being brought to the Lord, they rebuke them. And the word for rebuke there is the actual word for rebuke, which means that this, this stern and harsh uh, uh, hindering of them coming to the Lord. I, I'm going to get in the way and prevent you from doing this. So the disciples look at these parents and say, hey, you cannot, absolutely must not be bringing your children to the Lord. This is an error. This is a, a wrongdoing and we will not permit it. Now, in our society and culture, we find that to be bizarre. We love children, right? 
In our understanding, children are seen as innocent. They're seen as tender. They're seen as cute, adorable, encouraging. Until they turn two or so, at least. We value children. Even in our church, when we see children running around, we, we say that's a blessing. That's, that's life. That's encouragement. That's the future. That's not how people saw children in this time. In the time of this passage, children were seen as annoyances. They were seen as unable to contribute to the workforce. They were seen as lesser human beings until they made it to adulthood. And so in their society, they were pawned off and they were often neglected and they were sometimes even left by their mothers and their fathers. They weren't that valued. And you would hardly ever find a religious teacher spending time with them or blessing them. After all, they can't learn the weighty things of God. Why, why am I going to waste my time with them? That was the common mentality of the day. So what the disciples are doing isn't shocking to the people with Jesus and, and to the people bringing their children. They get it. They understand why the disciples are, are behaving in this way. It's not as if the disciples just went off the deep end and all of a sudden got mad at everybody. It's not that they just lost their mind and decided, you know what, we're going to keep Jesus to ourselves. Ourselves, We're going to keep Him from everybody else. That's not what they're doing. They're doing what is normal. They're doing what is custom. They're doing what they see all over the place in their society. They're doing what is expected of anybody to do for a religious leader. Don't make Him be bogged down with children. In other words, they think the Lord's time could be spent elsewhere. Right? He's, he's too important to mess with kids. And, and he's got too much going on. His teaching is too lofty. He's way too busy. There's other things going on. I mean, look at all the demons we got to cast out, and look at all the diseases we got to heal, and, and look at all the religious stuff we've got to correct. Jesus is a, is a very busy man. Let's not waste his time. Let's not bombard him with trivial matters like children. You know, we, we think about that and we think, how absurd is that? But you know what? We do the same thing, don't we? We confine our Lord to our social understandings. And we presume upon His intentions. We limit Him in His compassion and His care. We often even think and are tempted to think that way ourselves. The Lord is too busy to be concerned about this in my life. Or this isn't a big enough issue to get the Lord's attention. The Lord only cares about adults. The Lord only cares about big sins. The Lord only cares about big problems. The Lord only cares about true heartbreak. And that's the mentality of the disciples. But there's some things Jesus cares about and there's some things He doesn't have time for. A gentleman by the name of James Edwards in his commentary on this text wrote this. He said, Christians who presume, as do the disciples here, who presume to know the mission of their Master better than the Master Himself often end up opposing their Master. And that's what the disciples are doing here. 
presuming upon the intentions of the Lord and what the Lord cares about and what the Lord thinks is important, and they find themselves opposing the Lord. Jesus isn't wasting His time. Jesus doesn't have better things to do. As is custom with Him in every other encounter in the Gospels, He is totally, wholeheartedly invested. And right here, to children, even infants. So that's this bizarre scene we see unfolding here that Luke kind of wedges in, and and hopefully we'll explain later why he wedges it in this part of his Gospel. But he, he wedges it in here, and it's this bizarre thing for us to understand because we don't get what the disciples are doing, but their contemporary society would have certainly understood what they were doing. Jesus, though, doesn't get confined to social norms or cultural context. And in verse 16 and 17, we find the lesson that He would have us to learn here. He, he takes these social norms and puts them on, his, on its head. And there's really two applications of the lesson in verse 16 and 17. It's the social application and then the, the spiritual application. We begin with the social application in verse 16. Jesus called them to Him, the disciples, and He says, let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them. Again, understanding the society, this is totally shocking behavior. I mean, after all, Jesus is really one of the most influential, popular, radical people of His people of his day i mean he he's the person that everybody's attention is going to he comes into a town crowds flock to him he performs a work and news is spreading he travels to a different region and word catches up he's a busy man because of his popularity and not necessarily positive popularity but he's drawing a lot of attention and he says in verse 16 i still have time for the children I still have time for the little ones. In fact, he uses what I think to be a little bit more stern language to his disciples. Do not hinder them. Don't rebuke them. Don't cast them off. Don't put them away. It tells us that God is different. God is not like the social or religious leaders of his day. He's different. He does what is right. He does what is pure. He does what is good. It's the continued theme of Jesus showing compassion to the least, compassion to the outcast, compassion to the unwanted, the lowest of society. It also tells us something telling, I think. Jesus sees these children as human beings. Not as worthless. Not as other. He sees them as human beings created in the image of God. Deserving of God's attention and time. I was sharing with a college student. Sometimes I come to passages like this and I struggle because I really want to spend the rest of the time telling us how much we should care about our children. And our children's ministry. Because if God cares enough to spend time with them, we ought to be investing in them wholeheartedly. But I'll avoid that because I don't think that's what the text is coming to ultimately. I'm not going to tell us that we need to step up our game and 
reaching children. The Lord's emphatic. You might be doing what is normal. You might be doing what is custom. Disciples, you might be doing what's expected. And you think you're doing the good thing. You think you're doing the right thing. You think you're protecting me in my time and you're opposing me. Do not hinder the children from coming to me. The spiritual significance of this verse, though, is much more important. Not only is Christ saying, I'm, I'm not fitting into your social box or your human understanding. I've got greater things at play here. The, the spiritual significance is much more important. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It's not just a social welcome Welcome these children into my presence so that I can laugh and, and hear the cute things that they say and, and watch them learn how to walk. That's, that's not at all what's going on here. He makes a very pointed lesson. It's to these. Such belongs the kingdom of God. And then verse 17, he says it in a, in a negative way. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That is bold language. That's clear language. That's forceful language. It's absolute language. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will not enter it. What is the Lord saying? What is the Lord getting after? What are we supposed to understand about children that is so important to God that He would be stressing in a text like this to His disciples? If we're not careful, we impose our cultural understanding on this text. And many people have. And they come to it and they say, well, we must be like children. Innocent. Humble. Virtuous. Pure. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not commending the virtue of children and saying, if you're not virtuous like this child, you will not enter the kingdom. That's works-based inheritance. Jesus isn't commending us to be virtuous and to be innocent and to be pure because quite frankly, none of us can be, right? None of us can be innocent. None of us can be pure. None of us can be cute enough. We don't want to imply that acceptability before God depends on how good we can be or how virtuous we can be or morally innocent that we can be. Instead, Jesus blesses the children for their deficits. He commends the children for what they lack. He commends the children because they're without sophistication. They're without understanding. They're without ability to care for themselves, to meet their needs. He points us to the children because we are the children. We're dependent. We're fragile. We are helpless. We are confused. 
We are unable to contribute. We're weak. We're powerless. We're needy. And Jesus says only those who are brought to that place of understanding and acceptance will enter the kingdom. Only those who realize that they are like a child before God can ever hope to enjoy God. He goes back to verse 14 where Jesus tells us at the end of that parable, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who humbles himself before God like a child, acknowledging reality, will be exalted to the kingdom. Now, I want to apply this in two ways. In attitude and in reality. Christ is saying, be like this child or realize you're like this child in attitude. Which means you humble yourself before God. And not just in knowledge, but in heart. It's not just acknowledging that God is greater and I am lesser. We should all be okay with that thought. It's humbly laying your life down before God. Saying, I have nothing without you. I am a dependent creature. I am a dependent person. I am a dependent child. To humble ourselves like a child in attitude means we come to that realization that we're fragile. That sin can sweep us off at any moment. And that apart from Christ, we're needy and hopeless and helpless and we have nothing. We have to realize that like a child, we cannot offer anything to God. We cannot bring anything to the table. We have no innocence, no purity. Our baptism doesn't count. Our prayers don't count. Our church attendance don't count. We are like children. We're more like the tax collector in the previous parable. Only able to plead for mercy. We're like children. We don't have any ability to keep the law. Any goodness to our name. We're not like the Pharisee of the parable before. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's not who we are. We are children. And unless we realize that we are children unable to do anything for ourselves, we will not enter the kingdom of God. We're like children in that we haven't memorized enough Scripture. or adhered to the law enough. We don't know what to do to save ourselves. When Christ says, verse 16 and verse 17, to such belongs the kingdom of God, to, to verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, He's telling us, you have to realize how low you are before God. And not just in grandeur and glory, but in character and in goodness and in purity and in morality, you are a child before God. And it's to this individual that the kingdom belongs. 
Well, that's the attitude we are to have before Christ. We're to humbly lay ourselves down and admit, I'm dependent. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to contribute. I can't do anything. I'm hopeless and helpless. I'm fragile and needy. Every person who would enter the kingdom has to admit that before God. But it's also a reality whether you want to admit it or not. Humanity, because of sin, is fallen and broken, helpless and needy and fragile, and incomplete. We are the poor in spirit in Matthew chapter 5, and I find that to be a glorious truth that liberates us. Because you know what that tells me? The kingdom of God is not for the perfect and the strong and the best and the elite. The kingdom of God is for the children. The weak and the powerless and the dependent and the fragile and the needy and the hopeless and the helpless. In other words, you don't have to have it all together to go before God to be accepted by Him. You have to admit who you are. You have to admit your state before Him. Your humility before Him. Your desperate need before Him. This text doesn't belittle the kingdom of God. It doesn't belittle the standard of of Christ. It's what makes the gospel glorious. It's what makes the, the gospel radically beautiful to me. That God has a heavenly place reserved for those who don't have it all together. Yet who come to Him in humble repentance and faith. Acknowledging I don't have it all together. It's so contrary to normal thinking, isn't it? That a holy and heavenly God would reach out to the helpless and undeserving. To the unworthy and those who need to be taken by the hand at all points in life. You may not have children or or grandchildren, but you've been around enough here to know how needy they are. And what I think is so remarkable, even verse 15 Back to verse 15, Luke says they're bringing even infants. And and back to what I said earlier, he's using that phrase, even infants, to show just how helpless these children are. They need people to feed them. They need people to change them. They can't bathe themselves. In fact, they can't even be left alone in the bathtub. They can't talk. They can't walk. They can't crawl. They are totally dependent and helpless. And that is you and that is me. We are the even infants. We're not toddlers or children who might be able to bring you our shoes. We're the babes, the babies, the newborns. We cry, but we don't know what we're crying for. We're restless. We eat too much or we eat too little. We need someone to take us by the hand. That's who we are. And that is who Christ reaches out for. It's not the Pharisee of the previous parable who has merits to claim and abilities to claim and seemingly righteousness or perfection to claim. It's the tax collectors. The children the, the people who have nothing to offer, you and I. Ultimately, what we come down to here when Jesus says, 
in verse 16 and 17, it's, it's these infants who will inherit the kingdom of God. He's stressing grace over merit. Because what can an infant do to enter the kingdom of God? Nothing but be carried in by God. What can you and I do to enter the kingdom of God? Nothing but be carried in by God. He's stressing grace over merit. Grace over ability. And the word infants just shows us the extent of that grace. So what's the requirement to enter the kingdom of God? Run to Christ as a child. Run to Christ in total dependence. Acknowledging that you can't do anything to save yourself. And that you can't do anything to make your sin right before God. All you can do is plead for help. Back up into verse 13 of this chapter when the the tax collector comes and he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he beats his breast and all he can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is coming to God in dependence like a child. I have nothing to cast myself on but Your mercy. And what makes this passage so beautiful is Jesus says, those are the people I'm coming after. Those are the people who get in the kingdom. Those are the people who are warmly and freely and completely embraced by the arms of the Savior. Oh, it's a temptation and it's a lie of the devil to think you have to paint yourself in a perfect picture before Christ. One, He knows every wicked ounce of who you are. But the truth of this passage is He's wanting you to lay it all bare before Him. And humble, childlike dependence. Those who humble themselves before God, who acknowledge their need, who acknowledge their complete inability, who acknowledge their total dependence on Jesus for salvation, those are the people who will be welcomed in. Consequently, verse 14, those who exalt themselves and think they have something to boast about, will unfortunately find the door of heaven shut. What does it take for you to get into the kingdom? Lay your life bare before the Savior and plead for mercy and believe the promise that those who come lay themselves bare before the Savior and plead for mercy will find it and receive it and be welcomed into it. You have nothing to boast for. You are the infant. I am the infant. But it is the pleasure of God to fill His kingdom up with those who are undeserving and helpless. It is the delight of God to reach out to those who can't contribute. Who have nothing to offer. It's the pleasure of God to care for the children. That's you and that's me. See the beauty of the Gospel here? See the liberation here that you don't have to have it all together? See the love of Christ here? Jesus didn't die on the cross for the 
boastful Pharisee who has it all together. He died on the cross for the humble tax collector who's broken and needy and helpless. And if you come to Christ helpless today, humbled, pleading for mercy, He will warmly embrace you. Lord, I thank You for this text of Scripture. Because in it we see such such glory. I didn't do it justice, Lord. I know that. The impact that this passage of Scripture had on me this week near impossible to convey this morning. Oh, that we would see that our boasting before You is futile. That our merits, our good works, they're they're not something we can claim before You. That we boast of our goodness in vain. Oh, that Your Spirit would help us to see we are infants. And that only those who acknowledge that, only those who humble themselves, admit their need for You as Lord and Savior and plead for Your mercy, only those will find it and enter the kingdom. Oh, that You would help us to see just how childlike we are. How much we actually lack. Because it's there, Lord, that we see the the eternal grandeur and glory of the cross and the resurrection. Help our hearts to see the wonder that You would die for children. That You would resurrect and give new life to children. Undeserving unworthy, helpless infants. That's glorious and that's beautiful and that's liberating and that that places joy in my heart like nothing else because I know I don't have it all together, Lord. And we know we don't have it all together. We know that we could never be good enough. And Your gates open for such a people as us. Oh, show us mercy and save the lost. In Jesus' name, Amen.